Welcome to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkoff. My guest today is Camille Fournier. Uh, Camille is a managing director and head of platform engineering at Two Sigma. She uh, was CTO at Rent the Runway, and she's also a former VP of technology of Goldman Sachs. While she often focuses on technical topics, such as distributed systems and microservices, her most recent book is about management. In fact, about developers embarking on the manager's path, which is the title of the book and the topic of today's episode. Welcome, Camille. Thanks. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Glad to have you. So, Camille, how did you end up writing a book like this? So, it was a little bit of a lark. I, um, I was at Rent the Runway for about four years. And I did a lot of blogging in that time about a lot of the things that I was learning as a manager and as a leader um, in my time there. And when I left, I decided to leave my job and take some time and kind of rest up because, you know, being a CTO at a startup is quite stressful. Um, and one of the things that I did in the first few months I was off is I actually did this thing that's very popular, at least in the States, called Uh, National Novel Writing Month, which is where the month of November, uh, a lot of people spend the month and try to write like a 50,000 word book, basically. Um, and there's, you know, it's kind of like a gamified system, right? You write 2,000 words a day or something like that, and that gets you roughly to about 50,000 words. And I figured, you know what? I've got a lot of content. I've already, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been really, you know, deeply uh, invested in learning about management and learning about how to lead well. Um, so why don't I try to just throw some words on paper and see how it goes? And so I ended up at the end of the month with a extremely rough 50 to 60,000 word manuscript. And I wasn't sure that I was gonna do anything with it, uh, but I had some friends that, that you know encouraged me and said, you know what, Like, I'd really love to hear what you want to write on this topic. And so I sent the draft to O'Reilly And they said, you know what, this is pretty good. We think we can make something of it. And so I said, all right, fine, let's, let's do it. Let's write this book. <laughs> so there are a lot of books about management and about how to, how to work um, or how to act in a professional work environment. How different is the IT industry, the tech industry from others? And how specifically tailored is your book to this particular industry? So I think my book is fairly specifically tailored to people who are in technical management positions. And it's, I mean, it's really got a lot of things that are about managing software projects and software developers. Um, I think, I actually know people who are in sort of tech adjacent um, positions. So like people who work in design in tech, right? Uh, like a visual design or um, UX design who have also read it and enjoyed it. So I guess maybe there's a little more widespread appeal than just uh, solely to engineers. But I definitely wrote this with engineering management in mind because I felt that there were a lot of good books for general management. There's a lot of good books out there to teach you how to manage people um, and you know how to motivate people, how to give people good feedback. Um, there are a lot of books out there about leadership in general, right? How to be a strong leader. I mean, there's you know a huge industry of books <laughs> about mm -hmm. leadership. Um, and there, but there are very few books that are really written with engineers in mind, with software engineers in mind. And I thought, 
you know, that's what I know. I've not, I'm not a great manager of other kinds of things, right? I've never managed a customer service team, right? I've never managed a, a you know, a marketing team. I've managed a lot of engineers, a lot of different kinds of engineers, yes, but mostly engineers. So, you know, I wanted something that was very specific to people like me because I felt that there were a lot of people like me who needed something more specific to the challenges of their job. Mm-hmm. So do you think to be a good manager in, in the tech industry, you have to be a technical person yourself? Do you have to be a developer or do you have to have been a developer to be a good development team manager? So I don't think that that's absolutely 100% necessary, but I think it's fairly rare to find people who are good managers of engineers who have not spent some time working the job themselves. I have met a few people who have done it. Now, the people I've met who have done it have been still fairly what I would call technical. They're very technically savvy. They really understand architecture. Um, I know someone who manages engineers at actually quite a technical company, and she spent a long time at, I believe, ThoughtWorks doing a lot of engagements there. And you know, ThoughtWorks obviously does a lot of technical business engagements. So she was always working very closely with engineering teams in that job and had to learn a lot about architecture and software design from a high level. So she can speak the language and she's very technically savvy, even though she's never been a software engineer herself. I think you know there are people like that out there. I do think it's fairly rare though to find really strong engineering managers who have never been engineers themselves just because you know it's it's hard to know what is hard about the job of engineering if you've never done it. And frankly, it's hard to get the respect of engineers when they feel like you really don't understand their job and you couldn't, you know, couldn't at least sort of approximately do their job. Mm -hmm. So what about the other direction? Do you think that developers should have more respect for managers? <laughs> I mean, you know, as a manager, I would love to get more respect. <laughs> um, I think, I think, look, I think management is important and good management makes a huge difference in your day-to-day -day life, whether you realize it or not. A lot of people have never had a good manager and so they may not appreciate what someone who is good at that job can bring to the table. Um, but I do think that good management is important in making effective teams and making companies that people want to work at. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think it's a, an important part of a healthy software engineering team is someone who is managing that team well and who is making sure that, you know, they're, they're keeping track of the people and, you know, the work that's going on and sort of keeping that high level picture of what's happening. Um, I think that's a very important job. So I do think that respecting this as a valuable skill set is important, but obviously, you know, none of us exists without the other. We need software engineers. Um, software engineers, at a large enough team size, definitely need managers. So we kind of all got to work together. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe before we start talking about the different levels of management, the different kinds of managers or the career path that one might, might follow, um, if, if you're not yet a manager, what's a what is a good way to to help your manager do a good job 
So if you are not yet a manager and you have a manager and you want to help your manager do a good job, um, there are actually things that you can do. I think a lot of people view themselves as helpless to the whims of their manager. If they have a bad manager, there's just simply nothing they can do. Um, I think that's not entirely true. So I think that you can help by setting certain expectations. For example, if you don't feel that your manager is having one-on-one meetings with you often enough or at all, you can say, hey, I'd like to meet with you more regularly. I'd like to meet with you one-on-one more regularly. I think one-on-one meetings are one of the most important jobs that a manager has to do, that regular one-on-ones with the people who report to you are essential for developing a strong relationship, for developing trust, and for making sure that you can stay on top of issues as they arise. Um, If your manager isn't doing that, and as much as you want and you want more, you should ask. Now, your manager may not agree with you. They may say, no, you can't force your manager to have meetings with you. But if you want more of that, you can ask. And I think at a larger scale, you have more power than you might believe in uh, managing your career and in managing your relationship with your manager, right? Um, When you want different tasks, ask. When you see a project that you might want to work on, ask. If you're confused as to how to get promoted or if you feel like you're not getting enough feedback, ask for that feedback. Now, none of this guarantees that your manager will actually do any of that for you, but you will make their job so much easier by being explicit about what it is that you want, what it is that you're looking for, what it is that you need. Um, And I think that most managers will try to meet you there, right? It's, It's a real pleasure to work with someone who knows what they want and can just sort of tell you what you need to do to help them. That as a manager is actually a great thing to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's, let's dive into the, into this hierarchy thing. So, um, um, what do you, what do you see as a typical career progression? I didn't intend to say hierarchy in the sense of the strict hierarchy. I'm just uh, thinking of a progression of consecutive roles that you might, that you might fill on your way to becoming the CTO or the CEO of the company? Yeah, I mean, I think for many people, if you sort of follow a somewhat typical management career path, um, obviously you start out as a software developer, most of us, um, and you do that for a while. And I have always encouraged people to stay in hands-on engineering for as long as possible, as long as they are still you know, feel like they're learning and growing and have opportunities to challenge themselves. I think people underestimate how much time um, and energy being, it, it takes to become a really great engineer. Like most people, it takes you 10 years of doing it uh, to, to get there. And maybe you can short cut some of that by having, you know, spent your college degree in, you know, getting a technical degree, what have you. But You've still got a lot of time, you know, spending every day kind of writing code before you really have those deep set instincts. So I always encourage people to stay hands on for quite some time. Um, A lot of people, you know, become tech leads throughout some part of this. Um, And also, in fact, they often become mentors as well. Right. So as you become a more senior engineer, whether you decide to become a manager or not, usually you're going to have some kind of leadership responsibilities, um, whether that's 
you know, mentoring new people who are coming into the company, mentoring people who are more junior than you on your team or on other teams, um, being seen as an expert in some kind of technology or some part of your company's systems, um, becoming a tech lead, which is a leadership role um, that I think a lot of people benefit from, whether they are going to become a manager or not, um, that often involves you know, some degree of project management, technical project management for the things that your team is doing. It does, you know, it involves leadership. It might involve sitting in a few more meetings than you're used to because, you know, you're now the kind of go-to person for the product team or the business team or your manager, um, understanding what's really going on and the day-to-day work of the team itself. Um, And you're, you know, you're showing a lot of technical leadership there as well. Then beyond tech lead, Uh, usually this is kind of where people decide, at least initially, whether they want to think about becoming a manager of people or whether they want to stay in a more senior individual contributor path. Um, There's no, I I try to encourage people to say, look, it's very rarely that you're stuck in one side or the other um, forever, but this is usually the point which people decide which of those two that they want to do. So you've gotten to be a senior enough engineer, you're you're a tech lead, and now it's like, okay, what next? Um, And after that point, often if you decide to become a manager, you start by managing usually a small team of people, right? Maybe three or four people. You're probably still writing some code, but a lot less code than you would be even as as a tech lead who's not managing people. And, you know, if you succeed at that, you may manage a couple of teams worth of people. Um, You know, companies have different names for this level. Often it's just called engineering manager or some companies don't have names for these roles at all. But often if it has a name, it's called engineering manager, maybe manager one. Maybe there's a senior manager position if you're managing a couple of teams. Um, At some point, you might start managing managers. That's usually like a director of engineering type of position. Um, and managing managers is, you know, can go on for a long time, right? I now actually, the team that I run is about, is close to 100 people. Um, and so I have a bunch of managers of managers who report to me. And some of those even have managers of managers reporting to them. So, you know, you can imagine you can end up, you know, you can get into uh, a lot of levels. Uh, I'm, I don't necessarily encourage you having this like huge... Uh, you know, number of people in between the the leaf nodes and the root, as it were, but <laughs> but it can happen. Um, and then I think you know, at some point, right? If you are managing managers, um, you may manage divisions of a company. You know, you might manage all of a sort of large uh, subset of either the the technology associated with part of the business. Um, or a specific type of technology. So maybe you're the director of operations, you might become a VP. Um, And then eventually, you know, you could become whatever it is your company calls the senior most position. And sometimes that is CTO, sometimes that's CIO, sometimes that's like an SVP of engineering. Um, Sometimes there's not one person in that role. There's actually just a bunch of very senior people in in peer roles there. Um, But that tends to, that's what the progression tends to look like for people. Mm-hmm. So obviously you mentioned that it, this very strongly, very much depends on the size of the organization. So in a, yes. in a 20 person company, this will be very, very different from a, from a company with a hundred thousand employees. Um, but uh, what do you think of organizations that try to, um, to 
avoid managers as much as possible for as long as possible. If they're maybe at, let's say, 100 or 200 people in size. You know, I, I think that is a, I think, I think that's fortunately, I think it's a trend that is mostly dying right now, which is good. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people tried that and it just is not a very effective way to, it's not a very effective way to run anything that's sort of large, a large number of people where you have long, long-term goals that you're trying to achieve. I think it's very, very hard to organize a lot of people towards long-term goals without having people in management roles, right? I think if you've got, if you're just like organizing something real quick that is like a very tactical, very specific, you know, short-term goal, uh, maybe, you know, you're you're on like a, a couple of weeks of like, you know, a volunteer crew just trying to get something done really quickly, right? Maybe you don't need managers there. But if you are in a stable uh, system where you've got a year year goals, two-year goals, and you're trying to grow a company, I just think it's very, very hard to do that without management, partly because it's very hard to coordinate communication. You know, there's a little bit of this that's like, that's like you know, when you, when you want everyone to be kind of going in the same direction and highly aligned, um, that takes a lot of work to get that alignment. And usually that work is done by people in positions of authority. Um, and if you don't have people in explicit positions of authority, then what happens is you have kind of some kind of shadow hierarchy that happens, whether it's, you know, the CEO's best friends, you know, the early employees, they're the people who have all the power. And you know that even though there are, quote unquote, no titles here and no managers, you've got to talk to Joe, who was employee number one and who has the CEO's ear uh, to get anything done. And I think that's just, I don't, I'm not a fan of hiding uh, structure and pretending like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So maybe we can, maybe we can talk about each of those levels a bit. Um, so if we start with a software developer who suddenly finds themselves in the position of being a tech lead, what changes and what are some ways to, to find out what to do next? Yeah. So tech lead, you know, different, all of these things that I always have to be caveating with, you know, different companies have different ideas of what this might mean. Um, but I think in a lot of companies, the tech lead is, is someone who is respected by the team, who is considered to be a, a strong developer, and who is also considered to have good technical judgment so that they can be trusted with being the either the sort of tiebreaker on certain decisions or the person making certain technical decisions. Um, I think that usually you want someone in the tech lead role that there is a communication um, element there, right? So usually this person is going to be working maybe more closely with your product manager or your project manager or your business partner to help figure out what really needs to be built um, and how to build it to some to some extent. And that is, you know, that's a communication job as much as anything else. Um, I always expect my tech leads to be taking a very active role in the project management. So I don't usually have a lot of project managers on, on teams. I'm just not, I, I, 
I'm not a fan of that for small teams. For certain projects, yes, but for small teams, I think it's better when someone who is an active participant in the team who's actually doing the work is also in charge of making sure the work is, the project is moving forward. Um, and so often the tech lead role involves the technical side of that project management, whether it's, you know, running sprint planning or, you know, just breaking down the project to make sure you kind of know how, what, how the work needs to be completed in what order. Um, and then, you know, there is an element of just sort of leadership, right? So you've got a team, people are going to disagree on the ways that things should get done. Uh, at so- sometimes, you know, if your team is not perfectly aligned all the time, and you as the tech lead will be called upon to help mediate those disagreements, to help chime in, sometimes to make those decisions. Um, you'll probably be the person who needs to know who the experts on your team are in different subsystems or different you know, particular areas so that you can dig in and ask the right people the right questions to get the team unblocked or to answer questions from a business partner or a product manager. Um, so those are some of the things that I think you, know, you expect from a tech lead. Mm-hmm. So is that a job for everyone? Do you, do you expect everybody wants to be a tech lead and some of them some of only some of them should or what is what is some what are some criteria that people might self-assess themselves based upon to see yeah. whether the tech lead job is one they they might like you know i think i think that many people can become tech lead i think i certainly don't well i don't think that everyone should be a manager mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think more people i think tech lead has has a wider range of implementations such that more people could do this if they wanted to. It is a lot of responsibility. And if you're if you are happiest with headphones on, head down, writing code day in and day out, you probably won't be all that happy with the tech lead job because it's less of that. It's not none of that. You're definitely still writing code, but it is You know, it is sitting in a few more meetings probably than you were sitting in in the past. It's writing more documentation or design docs or um, reading more design docs, doing more code reviews, you know, running more stand-ups than you would have been doing in the past. And I think that, you know, if you are happy, happiest just, you know, being super focused on writing code and that's what you want to be doing day in and day out then probably tech, need, tech lead is not something that you necessarily want to do now. Although I do often encourage people to try it once. I think the nice thing about tech lead is most companies, tech lead is not a job title. It's kind of a role that you can take on for projects or you know maybe you, you serve as a tech lead for a team for a few months. You don't necessarily have to, therefore, you're not a tech lead for the rest of your career at that company, right? Um, so it does have a nice aspect of being something that is usually a little bit more flexible in in how you get that role and how long you have to hold it for. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, do you see a relation or a distinction to what an architect does, or is that essentially the same thing for you? Um, I think architect is such an interesting... Um, Architect is an interesting job title because a lot of companies don't have architects at all, um, or architects are are a very specific uh, a very specific group. 
So I don't really, I don't, I think there are, there's some overlap between tech lead and like, you know, the person who you might describe as the architect in, in a team. Like the more teams need tech leads than need architects. Let's put it that way. Right. So I think that you probably need a tech lead for every team. I, I would say, you know, most teams of four to eight need a tech lead. Um, they may not need an architect. Right. You may need you may need one architect for an entire, you know, area of technology. Right. You may you may say, OK, well, we really want an architect who's really focused on all of our back end systems or all of our, you know, all of our mobile apps, right? Um, but that may be a person who is thinking about the architecture across the general systems and not as much in, you know, project by project or specific um, smaller, you know, smaller focused products teams. So I think that tech lead is a little bit more of an operational role than architect. Op- architect is a little bit more of a, uh, you might say, strategic or, you know, high level role than tech lead. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're a, a higher level manager, um, should you should you try to get people into one of those positions? Should you, should you try to uh, to convince somebody to become a a tech lead? Well, I think that if you so I think that if you are a higher level manager, you should look at your teams and, and ask yourself, do we have tech leads? And if you don't. You should then ask yourself, okay, do we need a tech lead? You know, what would a tech lead do for this team? Do I think that this team needs the needs a point person who is going to take over, you know, the responsibility of making sure that, you know, certain certain technical processes maybe are followed, uh, it's going to take take responsibility for really collaborating most closely with the product manager or the the business analyst for the team. Um, and kind of get the team, get the team organized and make sure the projects are running smoothly. If you think that that would be a helpful thing to have for the team, then yes, I think you should probably ask someone to be a tech lead. And I would encourage you to not just ask the person who you think is the best engineer on the team, um, but make sure this person is also a good communicator. You know, this is, this is someone that is going to make your team able to operate better um, and not just think that, oh, now they're the tech lead and so they can tell everyone they, that they have to implement everything exactly their way and they get to make all the rules. Mm. <laughs> mm. Does anyone get to do that? Does anyone become a tech lead and get to make all the decisions? Um, I mean, I'm sure it happens. It shouldn't be that way. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm sure it does happen. You know, I'm sure there are companies where that are, you know, too hierarchical, right? When we were talking before about, I think people don't want to put hierarchy in because they don't want to limit people's ability to independently make decisions or feel like they have some autonomy, right? And it's bad when your tech leads are telling everyone exactly what to do and thinking that they get to make every single decision because they're in this tech lead role. Um, it definitely happens, Though, so as a manager, you have to be careful that when you put someone in that role, it's pretty clear to them that this isn't just a role where they get to make every single decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think most developers among our listeners will will be able to imagine that role pretty well because they're probably working very closely with somebody in that role if they're on a larger team in a larger organization. 
But what about the next level? As I understood, if I understood you correctly, the next level would be some sort of team manager, somebody with actual actual uh, responsibility for direct reports, right? Is that yeah. the, the distinction? Yeah. So how, how how do things change at that level? Yeah. So I think this is a little bit. Um, Usually when you are managing a team of a certain size, um, your job starts to become disproportionately about people and maybe project management um, and, and you know, organizational tasks and less about deeply technical things. Um, so sometimes tech leads will manage individuals. I did when I was a tech lead, um, not all the time. That's certainly not a requirement for tech leads, but sometimes the tech lead role will also have you managing a few individuals. And I think you can, I actually personally am of the opinion that you can manage people up to a small number, let's say three or maybe four, without really being a quote unquote manager, right? So you do need to be responsible for making sure you're doing one-on-ones and you're, you know, you're, you're helping You're doing some of those general management and coaching tasks, but there is a difference between having a few people who you are responsible for, who you're doing one-on-ones with, and you're, you know, writing their reviews and you're, you know, making sure they know who to go to, to answer various organizational questions and being a manager, being a team, being a real team manager. Usually once you become a team manager, um, you start to spend more and more of your time on things like, you know, larger organizational meetings, maybe the meetings uh, with the other managers in your division, um, figuring out what the planning is for the future, you know, um, focusing not only on the people that you have on the team now, possibly on hiring, a lot of recruiting, um, interviewing. Uh, you you often get pulled into, um, you know, pulled into just sort of the the organizational tasks that every company needs people to do and every team needs people to do, whether it's, you know, making sure we're, we're, we are, you know, doing a planning offsite for this team or making sure we're just doing like a team event, team building events, which is not usually something that you expect a tech lead or a, even a manager who's just, even a person who just happens to have a few direct reports, you don't usually expect those kinds of organizational um, things to fall on their shoulders. So the role starts to change. Now, I, I encourage people to keep writing a little bit of code, um, even when you're managing a team, as long as your team isn't so big that you really spend all of your time on management. And different people have different rules of thumb. I have a, I have a peer right now who's very, uh, very analytical. And I think he, he's done the math and he says, you know, I, Every person who reports to me directly, it takes like 13% of my time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, he knows exactly how many people, direct reports he can have before he is literally spending every bit of his time thinking about those people or their teams. Um, you know, if you're managing a team of four or five, you probably have a little bit of bandwidth. And I think it's a good idea to still write a little code or fix some bugs occasionally, um, you know, be involved in on call, um, you know, make sure that you're, make sure that you're really still in the details of the technology, even though you're probably not going to be the person that's writing big features. That's not usually a good use of your time. And you'd certainly never want to be the bottleneck to the rest of your team because you have other organizational tasks to do. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things you mention a lot of times in the book and uh, and you mentioned in, in this episode as well are one-on-ones. Um, can you define what a one-on-one is? Sure. So a one-on-one is a is a meeting between you and your manager, one-on-one. <laughs> so yeah, okay. uh, you know, and it and and it is usually I recommend that this be a regularly scheduled meeting. I prefer weekly. Uh, I think weekly is the best you is the best thing you can do. Um, you know, every other week is okay. Some people can make that work. I don't prefer. I prefer more regular. Um, you know, and a one on one is not a performance review. It's not a status update. It's not a. Uh, it's not a planning meeting. You know, it is simply a chance for you and your manager to have regular time to talk about whatever. And sometimes you will talk about performance. Sometimes you will talk about status. Sometimes you will do some planning. Um, Sometimes you'll do coaching. But the point of the meeting is really that you have this reserved time, hopefully every week, to touch base with your manager and talk about whatever is important for you to talk about, you know, uh, in Mm -hmm. that meeting. Can you talk a bit about why you think one-on-ones are so important and how you actually do go about organizing them? Yeah, I so I think that that one-on-ones are how you build trust with people. You know, I think humans need interaction to trust one another. The more you interact with someone, the more you familiar you become with them, uh, become to them. The the more you trust them, the more you're willing to open up to them about things. And so doing regular one-on-ones, you know, helps you as a manager build that trust with the people that who report to you. It helps you kind of just get to know them better, helps them get to know you better. And it reserves this regular opportunity for them to tell you uncomfortable things that they may be, uh, you know, scared of saying or reluctant to bring up, you know, oh, I really am just having a hard time working with so-and-so. You know, if they perceive you as too busy to ever talk to them, and so, you know, you very rarely do one-on-ones. You do one-on-ones once a month or once a quarter. Um, people are going to, people are not going to tell you these sort of light things. Maybe they're not serious yet. They're not an urgent issue, but it's something that's kind of bothering them. And those things are the things that tend to build up and build up and build up and turn into big problems. And if you can catch them early, you can correct the situation. If you don't ever talk to people and if people don't feel comfortable coming to you and expressing the minor annoyances, then you don't have that opportunity to catch them before they become major annoyances, before they become things that cause people to quit or cause projects to fail. Um, So I think, you know, I just think one-on-ones are really a very essential um, you know, pers- interpersonal uh, trust building exercise. And I care about them also because, you know, I've had managers who canceled my one-on-ones all the time or who didn't do them regularly. And I had a very hard time working for those managers. And I, you know, as, in comparison to the managers who were very good at making sure I got that time every week as much as possible and that they were there and they were attentive and they were listening to me. And I felt much more comfortable going to them with issues and we used a much better working relationship. Um, you know, how you run a good one-on-one, I think everybody does it differently and everybody expects different things out of one-on-ones. Um, I try, so I think that 
one-on-ones do not are not always any one kind of thing. They're not always career coaching. They're not always project status updates. They're not always just chatting about life, but they're, but all of those things probably happen in one-on-ones. Um, it's not actually a, necessarily a bad thing to occasionally get project status updates in a one-on-one um, because sometimes that gives you a good chance to really dig in on something that you may not have heard about as a manager. Certainly as a manager of managers, a lot of the time that you spend in one-on-ones is actually going to be around the projects that their teams are doing because you as a manager of managers are not going to have the time to know all of the details and to read all the details from every team that you know is in your organization necessarily. So actually in those kinds of meetings, you probably will spend a little more time on project status updates and possibly a little bit less time on career coaching or you know, general or, or technical mentorship. Whereas when you're managing individual contributors, a lot of what you probably spend time on is more, there's more going to be career coaching. There's probably more helping go into details about what they're working on and anything that you can help with. You know, maybe you can give them feedback on a piece of design or talk them through a code review that they're struggling with, right? So it, you know, what happens in your one-on-ones definitely depends on the level of people that you're interacting with and your personality. Uh, the final thing I will say is some people are very, very meticulously organized in their one-on-ones. They have, you know, running documents. They do shared Google Docs or Google spreadsheets of, okay, like here is the here's the topics we're going to talk about. You know, you're going to put some stuff in. I'm going to put some stuff in, and then we're going to run through this list. This, you know, every one-on-one, we're going to go through the list of things that we've put in the doc. Um, I have tried to do that, and it just does not work very well for me, <laughs> I have to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer a little bit more of a, I prefer my one-on-ones to be a little bit more, um, I, 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 wanna, I don't want to say casual exactly, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that we have time to dig in on things that are mentally pressing us right now when you walk in the room and we don't feel sort of constrained to an agenda that we may have written two weeks ago. On the other hand, you don't want to miss stuff that comes in on that agenda that should be important but isn't just urgent at this moment. So that's sort of the that's the trade-off there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's a what is the limit of, of one-on-ones a manager can do in a week? Well, there's like a, certainly a like time bound, right? If you assume you work 40 hours a week. Um, And you do 30 minute one on ones. You you could only do 80 of them. Hmm. Uh, only 80. <laughs> I find uh, only 80, right? You would probably yeah. kill yourself, and I don't know when you would go to the Absolutely. bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I find that um, you know I find that most most managers again I think that there's like a limit to how many people you can have as direct reports and really be effectively managing those folks. So I think for me personally, I don't manage very well after about seven direct reports. Um, mm-hmm. I can do it, but it's you're not getting as much of my attention. Um, I prefer to have, uh, I prefer, you know, I prefer to have, you know, six, six direct reports is kind of my like sweet spot. That's about how many mm-hmm. I like. And usually with six direct reports, some of those will have hour-long one-on-ones, some of those will have half an hour one-on-ones, depending on the level of detail that we maybe need to be going into based on the work that their team is doing or the kind of coaching that they need. Um, 
so, you know, obviously, like, every person is a little different. And depending on how you run your one-on-ones and what you're doing in them, you can have more or fewer of them in a week. But I certainly advise people to have one-on-ones with all of their direct reports every week as much as possible. And if you have too many direct reports to do that with, then you should probably start thinking about how you can uh, layer some of those direct reports or, you know, just, you know, add another manager of managers such that you don't have quite as many people directly reporting to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, uh, a few minutes ago, I asked, um, I asked you whether or uh, what changes when you go from being a software developer to being a tech lead? Um, what changes from 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 being a tech lead to being a manager uh, in addition to having regular one-on-ones? Um, well, so so let's say you are really like a full-time manager. So you have gone from you know having maybe three or four direct reports to managing a couple of teams worth of people. Let's say you have eight or maybe even 10 direct reports, um, or you have two distinct teams of project work that are reporting up to you. Um, I think that the big changes there are that you're going to spend a lot of your time thinking about how the, whether the team is operating well or not, and how you can be making the team operate better. And so that includes everything from Um, paying attention to the interpersonal interactions on the teams and making sure people are gelling well, they're they're collaborating well. You don't have toxic personalities that are undermining people on the team. That you you know that you've got you've got teams that are collaborating effectively together. Um, that means things like making sure the product team is working effectively with your engineers. Um, not everyone works with product managers, but for those who are You know, in uh, consumer-facing companies, often, usually, and most startups, you have this product management organization. And product managers can be tough for engineering managers to work with and tough for engineers to work with sometimes um, because, you know, they're focused on, they have a roadmap of features that they want to get done. And they're, they're thinking about the customer or they're thinking about this beautiful UX design that, you know, is their, their dream of this beautiful app. And you as an engineering manager are going to spend a lot more time collaborating with them and making sure that they are not steamrolling over your team and ignoring all of the technical things that the team needs to be working on in favor of just feature after feature after feature. Um, and that the engineers feel like they have a voice in what's actually getting built and that, you know, when they have ideas that they're at least they at least feel like their ideas are being heard um, even though you know product, the product manager does own that product roadmap, you do want your engineers to feel like they understand why the product roadmap is how it is, and that they are, you know, they feel like they're a part of that team that is making those decisions to some extent. Um, so you spend a lot of your time just, you know, much more on is the team operating effectively? Are we moving forward well? Are people getting along well? Um, are we hiring the right people? Are we developing the right talent? Are we, are we building the right things for the future of the business? So more and more as you go to more and more senior levels of management, a lot of your, the technical side of this job turns into the business is going in this direction or the, the, you know, the users that we are supporting 
are going to need these things. The tech industry is going in this way, right? We're, we're all moving to the cloud, for example. Um, are we set up to support that as we need to do it, as we need to move more applications to the cloud or as we need to, you know, write mobile applications in a new language or whatever it is that's applicable to your business? Are we building the right technology for the longer term and not just focused on today and these little ideas that we had today? So this is some of the ways that you start to, your job starts to change as you manage teams and you become a full-time manager of larger and larger organizations. Mm-hmm. So this sounds like more of a, of a almost strategic perspective on the whole thing, right? Not focused on a particular project, but rather on the organization building that, those, those products or projects that, that used to be your main focus when you were a tech lead or a developer. Is that a fair way to, to summarize it? Yeah, and it's, and it's a scale. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're, it, you go from very, very detail-oriented um, at, a sm- at, a, at a small scope where you have a lot of control over the work because you're actually doing a lot of the work yourself as a tech leader, a senior developer. Um, and as you add more levels of indirection between yourself and the work that's being done, and you're no longer doing the work, you're, you're more about the meta work. <laughs> you know, you're more about the way mm-hmm. the work is done the people who are doing it, um, and thinking about what work should be done at all. Um, a lot, another major thing that managers are really responsible for is ultimately they are very much responsible for prioritization. Um, so as you get towards the end of a big project and you're almost ready to ship and you've still got this sort of competing like things that everybody says need to be done, whether it's the product manager saying, oh, but I just really want this feature you know, these three features that I just think are super essential or the tech lead saying, oh, but we really want to do this refactoring or, you know, we really want to make it work with this other system. You as the engineering manager are going to sit in between those and look at them and try to kind of negotiate and prioritize to the things that actually have to be done for launch or can be delayed until the next version um, so that you can get these things out the door successfully because a lot of what your responsibility starts to a lot of the responsibility that you have at that point is, you know, getting, is the work actually getting done? Are we getting stuff out the door? Is it of high quality? Um, you know, is, is the team operating effectively? And are people, you know, are we retaining the people on the team? Are they developing? Are we not having a bunch of people quit on us? And are we hiring well? So all of these kind of aspects start to be what you're actually going to be held accountable for by your manager. Um, and therefore, you tend to get a lot more about, um, you know, the, the details of how we're prioritizing things and making sure we're, we're really doing the right work. Mm-hmm. What about stuff like salary negotiations and, and performance reviews and all those other classical management tasks? Yep. I mean, that's certainly part of it. Um, Performance reviews, most companies, if you are managing someone, if you are listed as someone's manager in some HR system, you will be doing performance reviews for that person, assuming that they get performance reviews. Um, I like to encourage people, if you're managing individuals, to be giving regular performance feedback. So, you know, when someone does something great or when someone does something that maybe is not so great, I encourage you to tell them quickly. Right. Certainly like praise. It's it's good to tell people they're doing good work. 
Uh, it's good to be specific about what they're doing that's so good and not to be like, good job, folks. Um, although I fall into that trap sometimes, I will admit. Um, but, you know, you want to be giving people performance feedback on what their strengths are um, when they do something. Let's say they write, you know, a unkind comment in a code review and you can tell that it upset the person who is on the other end of it. You know, you may want to grab them and pull them somewhere, you know, private and say, look, that was just not, that was not a nice way to address that issue. Um, you know, let's think about how we could perhaps have done that better and so we can do that better in the future. Um, and then I think I am I am a fan of more in-depth performance reviews yearly um, where you actually get feedback from other people and you ask the peers of a person or the customers of a person how, how they feel about interacting with that person. And you spend a little time kind of thinking more deeply about their performance and what they're good at and, you know, where they could be developing themselves because... Sometimes, you know, it, it's worth having some focused time to think about a person and gather data and evaluate, like, really, do they seem great because I just, like, like them and they're fun to see day to day? Or are they actually getting amazing work done? Um, so, so I think a, a more formal performance review is also useful for that process. Um, now, salary negotiation, it's very, actually, what I would say very much depends um, not every level of management does salary, does compensation stuff. So different companies handle that different ways. Some companies have salary bans and HR and recruiting do all of that negotiation. And maybe the senior management of the manager of the division signs off on that. Um, you know, some companies, if you're at a startup, you may be just sort of working with recruiting or the CTO to figure out like what we should be offering someone. Um, that is a little bit more you know, that, that's a little bit more of a case-by-case case and doesn't often come until you're a little bit more a senior manager um, at most companies. Mm -hmm. how, how do you find out whether you're a good manager or not? Yeah, that's, a, that's tough. Um, I think because it's always very lagging indicators. <laughs> it's very lagging indicators, right? So, you know, if you're a... If you're a good or at least pretty good engineer, it's you have very short feedback loops. You know, you write some code, you write a test, the test passes, you know, the code gets into prod, people start using it, either you get paged or someone gets paged, or it all goes well. And yes, there are definitely things you can do as an engineer that will be mistakes that you will regret six months later or a year later. We, we all do that. But By and large, it's it's a lot more it's a lot easier to sort of see you see yourself progress um, and have a good feeling for you know how good are you at writing code how good are you at you know debugging these systems how good are you at sort of designing things to take into account all kinds of whatever you know edge cases and actually then seeing them through to completion. As a manager, it's a little bit more nuanced. So you know how healthy your team is, how well your team is, depends on to some extent, you know, how talented is the team that you have hired? Um, how well, how motivated are they? Are they, they may be really talented, but totally unmotivated, or they may be untalented, but they're so motivated that they can accomplish amazing things, right? And the talent actually doesn't matter as much because they are, you know, really invested in a goal and they're, they're just like focused on getting there and doing it really well. Um, you know, people on the team 
can have a great impact into how effective the team is. So you can have people on the team who undermine the team's effectiveness by just being, you know, they may just be in the wrong job in the wrong company for them. And that comes out and it drags everyone down. Um, you know, you don't tell people what to do every day. This is not, managing is not like building a computer where you're literally writing instructions and people are following them. It is, it is not like that at all. It is, you know, you sort of give suggestions. Um, you may set certain priorities, but it's very rare that you're really directly telling people what to do and exactly how to do it. And so, um, so to that end, you know, you don't necessarily know if the team is doing well, is it your fault if the team is do, or is it, is it because of you? If the team is doing poorly, is it because of you? So how do you know if you're doing well? Um, I think in general, you've got to, you've got to measure a few things. Retention is a big one. Are people staying? Are people quitting? If people are quitting a lot, you're probably not doing all that well. Although if you are in, although Retention is heavily determined also by how well the company pays, <laughs> how hot the tech mm -hmm. industry is, and how much people like the general work that the company has for them. So retention it tends to be a good indicator, but it is unfortunately not, uh, it's not the only one. You can be a pretty good manager in a startup that just doesn't pay that well and you know that's doing work that not a lot of people are super excited about. And you might not have a great, a great track record of retention. However, you should learn from that and learn who you're going to hire that you are going to be able to retain, right? So in that case, you may say, you know what? I'm not going to be able to hire people who would otherwise go work for Google because I'm never going to be able to pay them enough for them to overlook the fact that they're not at Google right now. And instead, I should hire people who probably would not get a job at Google, but who have different talents and are excited about the work that we're doing here and are not going to always be looking around the corner for the next big opportunity. So, so retention is one thing that you often measure to tell if you're doing well. I think team engagement is another one. You know, does the team seem happy to come into work? Um, are they, you know, do they seem friendly with one another? They don't have to be best friends and hanging out all the time, but you know, do they often eat lunch together? Or, you know, if you were to have a happy hour, um, would many of them stick around and hang out for a little while? Um, you know, obviously you've got parents, not everybody can do that, but you know, modulo sort of other life obligations. Do you feel like your team is, is working well together and actually enjoys one another's company and they have positive and supportive interactions? Um, that's a good sign that the team is doing well. And then you usually have some, something to do about that. Um, and then are they getting stuff done? You know, teams like to ship. Engineers, I, I do believe that most engineers like to get stuff done. They like to complete projects. They like to see their work being used. And if your team is getting things done, you're probably doing a pretty good job, especially if what they're getting done is high quality. You know, they're not getting drowned in alerts all the time. They're not, you know, just dying from on call. Um, so those are some of the things that you can use, I think, to... Uh, to measure whether you're doing a good job as a manager. Mm -hmm. So I think some of those things reflect upon the, the company's, um, the company's culture. Um, because, uh, 
you, you, you explain it from, from a team perspective, many of those things could be, could be applied to the company as a whole as well, right? So, so how, how, yep. how much of a role do managers play in shaping company culture? So I think, especially at startups, if you are in a management position, you probably play a pretty big role. Um, you know, certainly the CTO of any company, but especially a startup, has a huge, huge uh, place in the the culture. And so a lot of what culture turns out to be, it's, it's a few things, right? Some of it is... Um, is the values of the company, the core values of the company. Um, and, you know, Rent the Runway had core values that were written before I got there. And it took me a while to appreciate that. What I learned from, um, what I learned from being there and sort of watching those core values come into action, um, and the core values were things like roll up your sleeves and get involved, um, and we are all founders, Uh, happiness and positivity as a choice. So there were there were a bunch of different core values. And what I found after observing those for a while and observing who did well at the company was that the people who matched the most of those values were actually the happiest people at the company, the most successful people at the company, whatever their background was, right? Did not necessarily the people with gold-plated degrees and amazing backgrounds, but they matched all of those values so well that they just really got along with people well at the company. They got it. They they had the right attitude. They had the right kind of work ethic. They focused on the right things. Um, so I do think that, you know, values are important. And if you are starting a startup or if you're at an early startup that hasn't spent time thinking about your company's values, I actually think that's super important to do. And then as a manager, you should be recognizing and reinforcing those values in your employees. I, Some people say, and I kind of agree, that one of the most important things for a performance review, a formal performance review, is helping people um, see where they are out of alignment with company values and where they're in alignment with company values and reinforcing that culture. Um, there's more to it than that. You know, I think other things about culture are just the simple documents that show people These are our, this is our career ladder, for example. This is what it means to be at various different levels of, of a career ladder, or these are the, these are the skills that we're looking for in engineers. These are the skills that we think are important and being explicit about that. Um, some of the cultural things that you need to think about are also kind of the rules of engagement for people, right? Do you have, uh, do you have a way that you do code reviews that people understand? They understand what the point of the code review is. They understand, you know, how to go about it, right? Do you have processes around architecture reviews or, you know, operability reviews. Um, these are kind of cultural documents. And then there's also things that are just like, you know, what are the kind of activities and celebrations that you do as a culture, right? Do you do things like um, weekly learning sessions where somebody will come in and teach the team in a brown bag lunch, something that they've learned? Um, or do you do, you know, quarterly offsites where you all go, you know, to a park and like, you know, hang out and throw a Frisbee and talk about work or talk about nothing, right? Um, all of these kind of different cultural things will shape what kinds of people are going to do well and how people know what it means to do well in your team and in your company. How much formalization do you think all of this needs? So I think, uh, I don't want to 
I like to formalize things, I will admit. <laughs> um, but I don't, I think that you want to formalize them, but at the right time. So for example, right, like career ladders, I do think that having levels, I actually am a, am a fan of having a career ladder and having levels. Not everybody does that and that's okay. I like it. Um, I think you should, I think you should do it and try to be as, I try to actually be pretty explicit with it because that makes it more valuable and more useful as a rubric. You know, if you're really talking about documents that tell people what it means to be successful at the next level, it's worthy spending, it's worth spending some time and being relatively precise, knowing that you're never going to be perfect, right? That there's always a ton of nuance and interpretation to all of this stuff. Um, but I do think that the formalizing process is worth engaging in because uh, because you're talking about something that's really important to people. You're talking about their career and you're talking about their future. Um, you know, I, I think that you want, I think process is good to have. You want to keep it to kind of what you need and no more. Um, so, you know, as you put a process into place, don't be afraid of removing steps that turn out to be not that useful. Right. If you if you were to start, let's say, an architecture review process and you had a step where like everyone going through it had to like get comments from 10 people in the team on their design, let's say. And that just took everyone forever. And it actually didn't provide all that value. And it would be faster to just say, you know, what, actually you need to write a document and bring it to, you know, a room and talk about it for an hour. And that's that's it. That I think is I think it's you know, you want you want your processes to be as easy to follow as possible, but not, not burdensome. Um, because the value is, you know, the value is in just being kind of specific about the things that you can be specific about, but not too over prescriptive because there's always room for nuance and interpretation here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's talk a bit about something you mentioned at the beginning, which was, um, mentoring. Um, you mentioned that at the uh, maybe even at the point where some some of your peers are becoming tech leads, you might focus on different ways of being valuable beyond beyond the code level, so to, so to say. So, um, what are what are what's the what's the point of mentoring, and how do you go about becoming a good mentor? Yeah, I mean, I think the point of mentoring is that is that you're helping people. Um, you're helping people develop, right? So you're, you're making your team better by, by helping someone who's usually new to the company or maybe even new to the job entirely. And you're helping them get up to speed with what it means to be successful in this job or at this company. And you're being a, a set of ears to listen to their questions and answer questions for them. And you yourself actually, I think, learn a lot um, when you're mentoring someone because you get to see a fresh perspective on things. And that helps you, you know, that helps you kind of see things in a different way and can help you identify places where, oh, you know, everybody just knows that except every new person I mentor 
doesn't just know that, and they're always very confused about why the system looks this way or why we do this. And we've never bothered to really write it down, and there actually is a really good reason for it. So maybe we should write this down, or maybe we shouldn't do it this way. This doesn't actually make any sense, and there's a reason that every new person is confused by this. So I think mentoring, you know, I think mentoring is a good exercise for people because you it teaches you a bit of humility, right? You need to be listening. You need to be make yourself available to people and be patient with them and listen to them if you're going to be a successful mentor. Um, and it gives you a fresh perspective. Um, and you know, it's it's good. You know, it, it's good for. I mean, frankly, it's just good for like making connections with people that you people you mentor may end up being your, you know, being your best friend on the job, or they may end up being the person who gets you your next job. You never know. So I think it can be a good um, relationship building exercise. Mm -hmm. Are there restrictions on who a manager can mentor? Um, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, like, look, as a manager, you're probably not going to mentor someone on detailed technical things necessarily. I mean, you might, if you, if you truly are an expert in certain technical areas, maybe, but usually, you know, usually when you're a manager, you might be mentoring new managers or you might be mentoring someone who's a tech lead or who wants to become a manager. Um, that often makes more sense than managing someone on the right, you know, technical or mentoring someone rather on the right technical career path if they want to stay highly technical. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to get at the question whether it's possible to mentor one's reports. Well, it is part so you are a coach. I think part of your job in management is coaching. And so you can mentor, but you're probably it's good for people to have another mentor who isn't you, um, who they can frankly go to and ask things that either they may not feel comfortable asking you, um, maybe things that you wouldn't be able to answer well, you know, there, there are certain things that you're never going to be able to mentor on. Um, I would not be a good mentor to someone who wants to know, you know, what it's like to be a, uh, you know, a superstar Python data analyst, because I have no idea <laughs> what that, I've never mm -hmm. done that, right? I can't mentor you on that, I might have people on my team who are doing that job and I have to manage them, but I would probably want someone who is who is a superstar Python data analyst to be their mentor instead of, you know, trying to pretend like I can do that. Mm -hmm. There's one management level we haven't talked about, I think. Maybe we have and I didn't notice, but what about the, the highest level you can get to in a company? this uh, CTO or CIO or VP of, or no, whatever of engineering. Um, what do you, what changes when you, when you, when you become that person? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that is a very different job even than one level below it. Um, so it's funny. I am now uh, the head of platform engineering at two Sigma and I report to the CTO there and It's great, <laughs> I have to say, um, because the CTO job is really hard, or the CTO or head of engineering, whatever that job is, where you are, you are there in the executive team that is running the company as a whole. Um, it's a very stressful job, you know, because your peers, for the most part, are not technical. 
Um, maybe some of them are, but often you are reporting to a manager who doesn't really know what your job is like. If maybe you're lucky and you are reporting to a very technical CEO, you're at a techie startup with a technical CEO, but you know, if you are reporting to most CEOs are not really technical people. Um, so they don't really appreciate what the job of running an engineering team is like. Um, they've got a million different things on their plate. They're super stressed out. Um, your peers are often not necessarily technical, right? You're, you're working a lot with, you know, the CFO or the head of design or, you know, the head of marketing. Um, and so you need to learn how to communicate effectively with those peers without kind of relying on the technical communication skills that maybe you've learned to get to where you are now. Um, and you are the person that everyone in engineering probably is looking up to. And they're watching you extremely closely to see what you are focused on, the things that you care about, they care about, the things that you don't care about, they don't care about. Um, which is tough because maybe you're not all that interested in, let's say, mobile application development, but you have to have a great team of mobile application developers to make your product successful. And everybody's watching you. So you have to, you know, you have to spend time on that and take an interest in it, even if it's not maybe your natural interest area. So I, you know, it's a it's a very it's a very tough job. Um, and it it really does require a different set of communication skills to be successful at. It requires a lot of maturity and poise, I think. Poise is one of the most important things at that level. That was a hard thing for me to learn is really how to carry yourself and be mature and not, you know, overreact to things and, you know, and how to lead people really strongly and give them a clear vision for where they're going, um, how to lead your peers and, you know, explain to them why your team is not working on their pet project, but, but what your team is working on is really important. And you have to, you know, lead those engineers and make sure that they have the space to work on things that are important just to engineering and that they're they're not just turned into this operational arm that just, you know, spits out stuff that the business requests. Mm -hmm. Cool. So maybe as we're getting to 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 the end of, of this episode, what are what are some reasons anybody would ever want to become a manager? What's what's great about managing? Yeah, so I think I think a lot of people become think they want to become managers for the wrong reasons. So a lot of people do think they want to become managers because they think that managers get to make all the decisions and they get to tell people what to do. And that once they have the ability to tell everyone what to do, things will just be better <laughs> and mm -hmm. the right stuff will get done. And I, you know, and I will admit that I may have been one of those people at some point in my career. Um, you know, I do think it's, I think it's actually common for very um, highly opinionated people who really are, want things done their way to want to become managers. Now, that's not a great, unfortunately, that's not a great reason to become a manager. And as most people who get into the role of management myself definitely included, what you start to learn is that, in fact, as a manager, a lot of your time is not spent telling people what to do at all. It is spent enabling them to do what they can do. <laughs> it is spent, you know, coaching them and guiding them and listening to them. And occasionally, yes, you are 
you are giving sort of high-level direction of, I think we should go, you know, I think we should be focusing more on this, or I think we should be prioritizing this over that. Um, but most of the time, you are actually really just trying to balance making sure that as many people are getting to do the things that they want to do and the things that they're good at as much as possible and not undermining your team by just telling them, this is the way you're going to do it. You're going to do it my way or the highway, right? Um, and so sometimes you're watching people make mistakes that you think this is a mistake, but I'm if I tell them it's a mistake, they're, they're going to resent me or they're not going to learn anything. So instead, I'm going to sit back and let them make this mistake so that then once the mistake is made, we can all clean it up, clean up after it. Um, I think that people who go into management who are willing to sacrifice themselves um, in certain ways for the development of the overall team, I think that's a good attitude to go into for management. So um, I don't, I, there are plenty of people who go into management because they like people and they like the sort of um, the relationship building and team building. And I think that's, that's, that's also a pretty good reason to go into management. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is a level of it that it's also good if you do have some degree of opinions and you want to help people grow and succeed and be bigger and you, you can see a vision, um, but you're also willing to help the people along the way achieve that vision. Uh, if that makes sense, it's, you know, so it's a little bit rambly, but I, I think that like, mm -hmm. you know, like, like the people who I see who make the biggest mistakes in going into management are people who think that they have to manage people to be successful. And that is the measure of success for their company, or that is the measure of success for the industry, the number of people they manage or the number of teams they manage, that if the only way they can be successful is in this management role. And yet, when you look at them and you look at what they do and what they think about, and you have a conversation with them, they are super passionate about the detailed, detailed aspects of the technology. They care a lot about the engineering. Um, they don't care as much about how the team is working together. They're not that interested in the sort of organizational development or even really the necessarily the large scale project management, you know, and they're not really that interested in teasing out, um, you know, they're not that interested in sort of the interpersonal development stuff. Those folks can often will say that they really want to manage, but it's just never going to be their strength. And it's, it's sort of a waste to take someone who could be a great engineer, staff engineer, senior staff engineer, who could design great big systems and mentor younger engineers on how to be better engineers and make them a people manager where a lot of their time is going to be spent more on organizational process and project stuff. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, so, so typically at the end of an episode, we ask, um, do you have some pointers for listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic? Um, that is a question I want to ask you, and obviously we're going to point out uh, that you've just written a book on that, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But are there any other resources that people should look at? And more importantly, what are some of the long-term things that you can do to support your career as a manager? Yeah, so... Besides my book, obviously, um, there's actually a growing, a growing set of resources for specifically engineering managers out there. So there are a couple of different 
engineering management slacks um, out there that I think if you Google engineering manager slack, you'll probably find a couple of different links. Uh, I don't hang out in those myself, but I do generally speaking think that having people that you can talk to about engineering management, particularly in the early, honestly, not even just in the early stages of doing it, the whole time you're doing it, it's good to have friends to be able to gut check does this thing that I that is happening make sense? How do I address this issue? I do this still to this day with a group of CTO peers that I have, and it's very, very valuable. So I do think that whether you join one of these Slacks or you find you know, people in your company or people in the town that you live in or the, the city that you live in, um, developing a network of peers that you can ask questions of and you can get gut checks from is really, really important. Um, there are some good conferences. The Lead Developer is a conference that has that runs. They have a they run it in London. They run it. I think next year they're running it in Austin and New York. Um, and it's a great conference. The organizers are great. And that is sort of a mix of management and tech lead stuff. So I think for people in sort of the early to mid stages of their management career, that can be a very useful conference to attend. And there are other conferences around that that can be useful. I think you know. The talk format is not, you can learn something from it. You can get ideas to take away, um, you know, but uh, it's it's certainly um, probably not the only thing you should be doing. Um, I should, should also say that I am the person who runs the uh, technical leadership track in the Velocity, the O'Reilly Velocity conferences. Um, and we have a lot of different sort of topics on technical leadership that come through that track at the Velocity conferences. So you can also look for that. A lot of those videos are available online. Um, I think reading is is important. You know, there are a lot of blogs out there that talk about technical leadership, engineering leadership, and management. Um, some, uh, let's see, some people that I know, I mean, uh, uh, Michael Lopp, Rands, is uh, is someone that you know a lot of people look look up to in this area. I I like you know a lot of his writing is very entertaining. Certainly, um, my friend Laura Hogan, who is the VP of Engineering at Kickstarter, has a lot of great blog posts on this. Um, my friend Kate Houston, who runs all of mobile engineering for Automatic, also has a lot of great blog posts on this stuff. Um, there's a book. There's a, there's a few books out there. Rand's, uh, uh, Michael Lobb also has a book called Managing Humans that a lot of people like. Um, there's a book called Leading Snowflakes that a lot of people like. I will, I will admit that um, because I never read those books before I, started, before I started writing my book, I haven't read them because I didn't want to pollute my mind while I was writing the book <laughs> with other people's stuff. Um, but I've heard good things about both of those. And I do think in general, like, general general management books. So there are some good general management books. I like High Output Management by uh, Andy Grove. That's kind of a classic. Um, uh, First Break All the Rules is another one of those classics. Those are both cited uh, in my book. Um, there's a lot of great books on leadership out there. And I do think just, you know, if you really want to become a good manager and a good leader, reading, I think, is very useful. You know, I, I get a lot of value out of a Harvard Business Review subscription. That I have. Um, and so, you know, and I, I think just the last thing I will say is like, uh, you may also get 
value out of coaching. So I had, um, you know, I've worked with a personal coach for years and years um, on a lot of the challenges of growing as a leader and a manager. And she was incredibly valuable for me, and especially in the time that I was at Rent the Runway and growing my career there. Um, I also happened to have a CTO coach with Rent the Runway that was a little bit you know, through the company, and that was very valuable to me. Um, and I think that investing, you know, spending money to invest in your career uh, can be can be useful, right? And you don't, look, you know, your company may not pay for it. It's up to you if you have the if you have the money to invest in this, if you want to spend that, your money that way. I certainly think it's a worthwhile investment in continuing education to have a person to talk to who is good at sort of coaching people through, especially challenging interpersonal situations. Um, that's, I think, what a personal coach will give you. That's where you'll get the most value there. So that's a lot of different resources um, because this is not an easy thing, right? I, I definitely spent a lot of time reading and learning and talking to people and making a lot of mistakes. And I'm sure I'm still doing it <laughs> um, mm, throughout my career. And I think, you know, and I just think it's uh, so definitely don't be so don't, you know, never assume that you've learned everything that you need to know, because it's almost certainly not true. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So we're going to have very extensive show notes, which is awesome. Camille, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Fascinating topic. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Um, thanks for being with us. And thanks to your listeners for listening. Thank you for having me. Bye.